Welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. If you're passionate about mastering self-leadership, then you're in the right place. I have always been curious about and fascinated by the pursuit of leadership excellence. This is why I pursued my PhD in psychology with a specialization in business, and I've continued to dedicate my career to understanding the science and practice of positive leadership. My name is Craig Dowden. I'm a best-selling author, award-winning keynote speaker, executive coach, and member of the Forbes Coaches Council. Each week, I'll bring you world-class content on the science and practice of positive leadership. Through my conversations with best-selling authors, TED speakers, and top CEOs, you'll be able to leverage their insights and experience so you can maximize your potential and be the leader the world needs you to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Do Good to Lead Well Through Crisis webinar series. Uh, my name is Craig Dowden, and uh, for those of you who have joined me again this afternoon, welcome back. Uh, greatly appreciate you taking the time to uh, be here today. For those of you joining for the first time, welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you and really looking forward to a terrific discussion with my guest, Barry Schwartz, today. This series was created really to link back to the publication of my book, Do Good to Lead Well, The Science and Practice of Positive Leadership. And I had the privilege of being able to speak with top thought leaders, best-selling authors, TED speakers like Barry, CEOs uh, throughout my business. And I wanted to take an opportunity to share their wonderful insights with a larger community and have a more interactive conversation and so with the current pandemic, wanted to open up and offer this series, really focusing on resilient leadership uh, to, to a larger group. And I cannot emphasize enough how uh, privileged I feel that uh, Barry Schwartz is gonna join us today. I could spend the hour that we have set up even longer providing a review of his bio, uh, but many of you are probably familiar with him through his TED Talks. Uh, if you haven't watched them, I would highly recommend that you check them out immediately after the webinar. Uh, so many people contacted me once they knew that Barry was gonna join us this afternoon. They were really excited about it. He's now a visiting professor of management at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of numerous books. Here are the latest three, The Paradox of Choice, Practical Wisdom, Why We Work, and I have my copies and they are all highlighted and it, it's fabulous. So I'd encourage you to check them out. Uh, great wisdom in there. Uh, he's written for the New York Times, USA Today, Scientific American. He's been on radio, TV. Uh, I'm thrilled he joined me before for a webinar. So I'm so grateful that he came back. And the last nugget, which I think is so incredibly valuable, powerful, because it does show the context uh, he's done four TED Talks that at the time I pulled it, and I'm sure it's much larger now, over 20 million views. So I just think that is absolutely extraordinary. And so without further ado, I want to welcome back Barry uh, to the program. So thank you for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure. Let me just comment uh, that those 20 million views, that's how many people started them. We don't know how many were. Watch them to the end. You're, 
you know, it's possible they check it out for 10 seconds and they go, this isn't what I want. <laughs> You're so humble in terms of, uh, I, I am sure for everybody that I know of watch, they found it really, really great. So uh, how are yeah. you doing? How are, how are your family doing during this extraordinary time? Well, you know, my wife and I are very lucky. Uh, we live in uh, Northern California. It's a gorgeous environment. Um, we're able to get out and walk every day and avoid crowds without having to drive anywhere. Uh, the only, and I'm, you know, largely retired so that my work routine hasn't been disrupted. What I work, I work from home anyway, mostly. The main thing is that I can't see my grandkids because um, they're worried that they may be carrying, my daughter and her partner are worried they may be carrying, and my wife and I are at the vulnerable age. So we do an awful lot of Zooming, uh, which is okay with the 10-year-old, but it's a little frustrating with the four-year-old. So we are either right. able to hug the kids, and you know that will happen yeah. soon, I hope. But we're doing fine. I mean, we have nothing to complain about compared to most people in most places. Right. No, for sure. I'm glad to hear that you're 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 doing well. And as you say, hopefully this will move past sooner rather than later. And uh, and and one of the reasons, so many reasons, I was happy that you could join us this afternoon. And and uh, you've kindly agreed to take questions from the audience, the live audience. So if any of you have questions, this is a wonderful opportunity to connect with Barry and ask one of the top thought leaders in the world questions uh, that that you may have. I just love your research and the books, the TED Talks you've delivered. And I think practical wisdom is such a timely, it's something in my coaching practice I hear a lot about, about how can we continue to be wise during these challenging times. If you can take a moment, can you talk about the primary idea behind practical wisdom? And then how, what do organizations and public institutions need to do during this pandemic to build trust? Mm -hmm. So my colleague, rebuild. Ken, rebuild trust. My colleague Ken Sharp and I um, wrote this book called Practical Wisdom. And what it was, the, the phrase practical wisdom comes from Aristotle. So it's a very old idea. And what he was interested in, unlike his teacher Plato, was not so much the abstract wisdom of white haired, long bearded philosophers sitting on the tops of mountains, but rather the everyday wisdom that enabled you to, as a builder, build structures that were attractive and also sturdy. As a teacher, communicate with your students in a way that inspired them. So it was real, literally practical. And the question is, A, what is it? B, do we need it? Why do we need it? C, how do we get it? And what threatens it? So that was the, that's what the book was about. And you know, the, the sort of shorthand is that practically wise people do the right thing at the right time in the right way for the right reason. There's a lot of rights. Um, what does it mean? It means that if you're a teacher, your aim is to educate and inspire, not to produce mm. high test scores, not to produce admission to selective colleges, but to educate and inspire and as a byproduct of you doing that well, it turns out your kids get high test scores and they get into good colleges. And we've seen in the case of teaching how easy it is to pervert 
because when you start teaching so so that kids do well on tests, it turns out you're not educating anymore. You're just producing these test-taking automata. And so that's an example of wisdom gone wrong. Uh, uh, the aim of medicine is to cure the sick, um, ease suffering and cure disease. Um, and that may take different forms depending on the context within which you operate and the particular diseases that you're trying to deal with. Um, that's a very different aim than the aim that focuses on protecting yourself from lawsuits, uh, making sure that you're um, that you have a very generous compensation, uh, you know, um, collaborating with drug companies or diagnostic centers that you have a piece of, so that uh, you have several income streams instead of just one, and so. The right thing is the thing that your activity ought to be pursuing. Um, right. And doctors ought to be pursuing um, health, curing disease and easing suffering. Teachers ought to be pursuing inspiration and education and so on. And there's room for disagreement about what you ought to be doing as a you know, stockbroker. Um, but uh, but right. the first question you have to be asking is, what am I doing this for? And if the answer to yeah. that question is to make a living, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. You know, that was Aristotle's view. The, the making a living is a byproduct. It's not the main, it should not be the main aim. And so uh, wise people have the skill to appreciate that situations vary and you can't simply follow rules to figure out what the right thing to do is. Every day brings challenges. And so do you have the experience that will allow you to improvise when new challenges confront you? Now, this is true for most of us. Most people who lead organizations know this on a daily basis. The coronavirus has just sort of smacked us in the face with how unanticipatable right. events can turn everything upside down. Uh, so they need the skill to figure out what novel situations call for and the will to do the right thing when they're challenged in this way. Um, and the thing, the point we were trying to make in the book is that modern society has really uh, acted, so, so wisdom is a, is a trait of character. Wise people are good people mm -hmm. in a particular kind of way. And modern society has tried to produce effective leadership without worrying about character. If you get the, mm -hmm. If you get the rules right and you force everybody to follow them, or you get the incentives right and you dangle the right carrots in the right places, you don't need people of good character. The combination of good rules and smart incentives will get people doing the right thing. And what we argue in the book is that that's exactly wrong, that if you rely on rules and incentives, you will get mediocrity, not excellence, and you undermine the development of wisdom. You're teaching people to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And then one day it's not the right thing anymore and they don't know what to do to deal with the situation that they confront. And so if I were leading an organization, what I'd be asking in general is, am I empowering the people who work in the organization to feel like they can use their discretion to make decisions about what's called for in a given situation? To feel like they will not be slammed for a mistake, to be, you know, to have permission 
to go their own way and learn from their mistakes so that the next time around, they're less likely to make them. Uh, do they know what the purpose of the organization is? And does the organization have a purpose that you're willing like to let your kids know about? In fact, this has become my, um, I'm sorry I'm going on for so long, but this is oh, my- great. This is my one sentence course in business ethics to replace the existing courses that are taught in MBA programs. To me, you just have to ask yourself one question when you face what seems to be a difficult decision. And that question is, if I did this, would I tell my kids? And if the answer to that right. question is no, don't do it. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's not what they teach in business ethics classes, but no. so what's, the, you know, what value does your organization add to the world? Do the people you right. employ know that that's the value your organization adds to the world? And are you giving them the tools so that they can actually do things that succeed in adding value to the world? So these are watchwords. Right. And the, the particular problem that the, the pandemic has posed, um, it, you know, it, it involves specific variants on that. Like now, all of a sudden, you're asking, you should be asking, how do I keep my employees safe? This wasn't much of an issue. Mm -hmm. you, know, you don't want meat cutters cutting off their arms, but you weren't terribly concerned about spreading disease. So how do I keep my employees safe? How do I keep my customers safe? How do my customers know that I actually care about keeping them safe? So they'll trust me. What, mm -hmm. and it's not just what signals do I send? What Facebook ads do I take? It's also what practices do I implement? so that people have reason to trust me and reason to believe that I care about their welfare and will not compromise their welfare to make another uh, you know, 1% on my, on my investment. Uh, I don't think people had to worry about that much. We just took it for granted that people were safe. Um, we can't do that anymore. And I expect we're not gonna be able to do that for some time to come. So how do you inspire confidence? in people those who work for you and those who will be buying from you that your principal objective is to make sure that people can transact business with you in a way that keeps everybody involved safe and that you're willing to sacrifice financially in order to assure that those conditions are met and this shouldn't have to be imposed by governors Right. or mayors or presidents, uh, although it is nice if you if you get that message from political leaders, it ought to be the sort of thing that each and every person running an organization should be asking all the time. Mm. I think nonprofits routinely do ask that. And the for-profits is less clear. As I read about the meat packing, the large meat packing companies, you know, I don't know that I'm getting a straight scoop on that yet. But it sounds to me like um, they are unwilling to slow down production. Right. They have to produce a certain number of animals slaughtered and packaged uh, an hour. And if that means keeping people too close together, uh, inadequately protected, inadequately separated with the, with the uh, or, uh, operation not shut down regularly for deep cleaning and so on, so be it. Uh, it seems to me that's the sense I'm getting that um, 
that it, it may be really hard to keep meatpacking plants safe. I'm not, I don't want to minimize it, but the evidence I, as I see it is that they didn't really try. Uh, right. And they may now be bullied into trying because the alternative is to be shut down completely. So that doesn't inspire confidence. And I think it leaks. If you're not willing to keep your employees safe, why should I trust that the meat I buy is going to be safe? You know, you're too interested in making money and not interested enough in the welfare of your customers. So that's an example. Um, uh, and we, we all face new problems. Nobody was trained in any occupation except maybe epidemiology. Nobody was trained in the tools it takes to uh, handle a crisis like this. Some people seem very good at it. And I think it's because they have the right intentions. So that's a very long answer to right. the question. Well, and just to, so I had a bunch of comments playing. This is an awesome opening. Please don't stop, Barry. This is amazing. <laughs> so uh, I, you, I just want to shoot, and I have a bunch of other comments here. So people saying this is, and love, and another one said, love the question, would I tell my kids that I did this? Like, Game wrote game changer in the comments. So. It, really, it really is. It's amazing how it makes complicated things into simple things. Yes. In fact, maybe the best reason well, to guess. have kids. The best reason to have kids is that they keep you on the ethical straight and narrow. Right. Well, maybe the ultimate expression of practical wisdom in that question distilled in that question: Would I? Would I tell my children? Would I? Would I want my kids to behave that way? And you talked about uh, inspiring confidence, like within your customers and within your employees, that you know that you're you're doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason. So, two questions: Do you have additional kind of examples, companies, behaviors that you've seen that that can do that? And I wonder, for some people and executives and companies that I work with, they may feel a little like. How do I let them know? So might they be concerned that, you know, in the presentation of the steps that I'm taking, they may come across as being self-serving when they're doing it for their, so can you? Listen, I don't know how to answer that one. Um, I think, <laughs> I think you, can't, you can't hide your light under a bushel here because people have to know they can trust you. So somehow you have to get right. the work. On the other hand, if you get the word out in too self-righteous and self-congratulatory way, then you think, well, they're just manipulating me. How can I trust them? So, you know, this is what you have PR departments for. There, there are better and worse ways to do this. You know, what I what I like is um, who's the, the head of um, Salesforce? Oh, yeah, I name escapes me now. Right. Me too, and it's an unusual name. You know, he's a he's a pretty left wing kind of guy and very Benioff, Mark Benioff. Uh, very okay. generous with his billions. Um, but he in a very un uh, unobtrusive way has essentially single handedly enabled the Bay Area to have all of the protective equipment that it needs. He did it right. partly with his checkbook and partly because he knows somebody in China who can arrange for the production of masks. And he knows the CEO of Walmart who can arrange to have the stuff trucked. And he, uh, and he knows somebody who gave him charter planes to fly. You know, it, 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 
there was no big uh, pronouncement about it. He simply did it. Uh, so there needs to be some sort of balance where you occasionally discover people are trying to do the right thing without calling attention to themselves. And that inspires confidence that in their actual public role, they're also trying to do the right things. It suggests that they know what's more important than what. Um, you know, in the, in the restaurant industry, there have been several people who have stepped up uh, with, the, uh, with the several missions. One is to save neighborhood restaurants um, and be a mouthpiece for restaurants that, you know, don't have that kind of uh, public for, uh, platform uh, about how desperate the restaurant business is, how you're basically operating with one month cushion. Uh, how impossible it is to, you know, seat people at one in every four tables and still be able to pay your bills, and also helping them to sort of shift their business at least temporarily to, you know, take out, call us up, make an order, pick it up, and and then trying to encourage customers to buy from me to patronize these restaurants to help them um, stay around. And when you hear that these restaurants, the last thing they do is let staff go even though the staff have nothing to do. Uh, for me, that's enough to make me wanna find some way to patronize them. So I don't, you know, I don't, um, I don't have a lot of examples of people who seem to be sort of steering the ocean liner to be able to be helpful mm -hmm. in this. Mark Cuban, somebody who, you know, he's the mm -hmm. owner of the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, he's got a very big mouth. I'm not a huge fan of his. Uh, you know, he's a billionaire, I think, from tech. But he is just full of ideas about very specific, concrete policies that will enable small business owners to survive if this doesn't go on indefinitely. And in the course of articulating these policies, he points out the shortcomings of the policies that are actually being implemented. Uh, you know, you're doing it this right. way. If you only did it that way, it might actually make a difference and stuff like that. It seems to me he is not trying to uh, cultivate an image that will get more people to buy tickets to the his basketball team's games. He's really trying to help society solve a massive problem. So there are people who who show themselves in moments of crisis and often they're not the people you would expect. Bill Gates has been a giant. Um, now he's you know, had a major, major investment of time and money in developing um, healthcare internationally. So when this happened, he was already at the cutting edge. He knew everything about everything, but he's been a really, really vocal, articulate and clear uh, uh, spokesperson for what the world needs to do and what the United States needs to do and what it is doing and what it's not doing adequately at the moment. So, and then of course me, you know, I've had a major impact on world affairs <laughs> by going for walks <laughs> in my neighborhood and wringing my hands. <laughs> well, and, and a couple of things, I have a question and then I, I'm going to make it up. I love that, um, you know, earlier you talked about empowerment and 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 organizations and its senior leaders empowering their teams because I, I remember coming across a really powerful study which showed that empowerment 
is critical not only for the empowerment is not only critical for the success of co-located teams for virtual teams that's essential in terms of ensuring do they feel empowered that they can do remotely what needs to be done they pivot and make those uh, mm-hmm. those wise choices will in the situations that they're facing and you know um, that's actually quite an interesting thing because you know my sense is that a lot of people in certain domains of business could have been working rem- remotely all along an enormous amount of yes. time energy and effort is spent moving from point a to point b where you do exactly the same thing that you could have been doing in point a now there is something that you get out of meeting and brainstorming i don't want to make that seem completely trivial you get something out of casual accidental contact with colleagues but i think mostly it's about lack of trust on the part of senior people that the junior people will actually do an honest day's work. All the data I know about suggests that people are more productive working at home than they are working in the office. They wait less time. Uh, They put in more hours and more quality hours, and they can be trusted. And maybe one one benefit of all of this is that high-level executives will learn that they really can trust the people underneath them to take the work seriously and do it and do it well, and that will have a that may make a major change in what work looks like going forward. For sure, and well, and 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 I'm with you. All the research I've seen is exactly the same. That working from home, more productive, more engaged, long, you know, better output. All those kind, of, uh, yeah. really uh, committed to the organization. And I think also what's interesting is the question about well, if you can't trust them to work from home. Like maybe that says something about a hiring strategy about if that's right. Like if you can't trust them to do the right thing in that context. So being in your organization is going to somehow magically change that. What makes it change is that you're looking over their shoulders. I mean, there's a deep, deep, <laughs> there's a deep suspicion that most of us are basically lazy and we will do as little as we possibly can get away with. And so I need to have oversight and incentives in place to make sure you work your little ass off. (laughs) Uh, And you know, even people who who spout a different philosophy, when it comes to the crunch, they got those cameras looking to make sure that everybody is working. And I think that it is a hard lesson to learn that people want to do a good job and can be trusted if right. you give them adequate tools to do a good job. Right. Uh, and all again, all the literature I know suggests that trust in this way is invariably rewarded by enhanced performance. It inspires people right. to know that you have confidence in them uh, to do the best they can to achieve the mission. So maybe this will uh, this is something bosses will learn. For sure. Well, in, to build on that, what's interesting, I've had several CEOs on, and one in particular, he said, I was kind of the last person in the world, if you had asked me before, like, would I be a supporter of remote working and everything else? And he said, just there was, I was on the, the late adopter just off that curve. And now what this has shown to me is that I'm rethinking and there will be a percentage of my organization 
that's going to be working from home and we'll have that option moving forward because of this. So it's yep. going to be an interesting to your point, very like kind of opportunity to reflect on that. Well, and, and one other thing I want to share or, or explore because you, you've talked so much and so eloquently, like, because you talk about policies, procedures, incentives are basically ineffective in encouraging people to do the right thing. Can you unpack that a little more? Like, so what is, what's broken about that approach? And then how can organizations and their leaders and, and uh, many of the people on this call or on this webinar today are gonna be senior executives, what can they do to ensure that people, their employees do the right thing? Well, so I'll, I'll, I'll answer the first, the first one is easier. Sure. First one is easier to answer. <laughs> So uh, let's go back to the example I mentioned very briefly before, the teacher. Um, what is it, what are your objectives as a teacher, a high school teacher, high school math teacher? Um, what you can learn from your senior administrator is your objective is to make sure kids score high on the annual state achievement tests. Um, now, one way of assuring that they score high is that you really teach them well. Um, because the tests, after all, are meant to be an index of how much students have learned. But there's a shortcut way of doing that, which is that you teach them how to do the test. Now, what happens is that the test scores are high, but they're no longer an accurate reflection of what the kids have learned because you've di you disconnected them by focusing on the test. And so if the metric you use for evaluating your people is something like a test score, and if their own uh, opportunities, if their raises, bonuses, and advancement depend on that metric, then people will learn how to improve that metric. In other words, they'll gain, they'll learn how to game the system. And naively, folks who are making decisions about how to organize their workforce think that they can outsmart these efforts to game the system. And the lesson for through history is no, they can't. You know. They'll outsmart that effort, and somebody will find another way of gaming the system. The only way system you can't game is one where what your objective is, is to teach math to your students. Then there is right. no gaming. You are doing the very best you can, and now the test that kids take at the end of the year is actually a decent index of how much they've learned. And if you use that index, to help the teacher get better as a teacher, that's great. If you use that index to determine what kind of wages the teacher earns and whether the teacher gets promoted, then it's an invitation to game the system. So it's not hard to see how, and, and the response in business in my experience has always been, those were dumb incentives, we'll create smarter ones. Um, and, and, and it works for a while, and then people find a way to game the smarter ones too. You know, um, people thought it was a revolution in the organization of business to make a significant amount of executive compensation come in the form of stock options or shares. Because now what you were doing was creating a situation where what was good for the executive and what was good for the company were identical. They lined up. 
How do I make a lot of money as a CEO? The company does very well. The better the company does, the better I do. If I loaf and the company falls off, I lose my job. And now you've got a system, well-oiled machine that takes care of itself. So what happened as a consequence of this? Every scheme imaginable to produce short-term company, a good company performance on short-term metrics with no regard for the long-term well-being of the company. So it might accidentally be true that what's good in this quarter is also good in the long run, but you're not interested in the long run, you're just interested in this quarter. And so what you had with the, with the, the tax um, cuts, you had massive amounts of buying back of company shares. Why? Because it raises the share price. Why would anyone want to do that? Because as the share price goes up, my status as a CEO goes up, and I'm going to get a $12 million end-of-the-year bonus. What does that do? It makes companies incredibly vulnerable to something like the pandemic. You know, these companies have got massive givebacks from the government should have massive cash reserves, and they don't because they spent all this money buying shares from people like you and me. So here's a case where a smart incentive system is actually sabotages the long-term well-being of the company. There is no substitute for people who work to assure the long-term health and well-being of the company because that's why they show up at work every day. Not to get a promotion, not to get a bonus, but to make the company better to today than it was yesterday. So that's the problem. Now, how do you how do you implement something like that? One thing you do is you get rid of all these destructive incentives. If you trusted people that they wanted to do the right thing and you empowered them so that they had the tools to do the right thing, then you can it, you can have a system of compensation in place where when the company does well, everybody does well collectively. And when the company has hard times, everybody suffers collectively, but everyone is presumed to be in it for the welfare of the company and the company's customers. Uh, so there's no reason to jump over the and sabotage your the person in the next office because you're you're basically you're operating with the same set of incentives. And if that isn't enough to motivate you, then get a job someplace else. Right. But yeah, self-select out, right? It's it takes a lot of courage to to go in this direction when nobody when you look to your left and you look to your right, companies are not going in that direction. Right. So and well and uh, I've never been in the private sector, right? I've had my entire career teaching in academic institutions. So I can pontificate about how private sector companies should operate since I've never actually had to run one. Right. <laughs> well, and um, it's, it's Tara uh, said, you know, you've talked a lot about the importance of character. So what opportunities exist during this pandemic for organizations and leaders to learn about and facilitate character development? Is there anything that we can do to build and grow our own character? What advice would you have around what opportunities exist in this, in this well, situation? So this, is, this really is an opportunity. What, what, you know, there's going to be an awful lot of people putting fingers in the dike, right? There are a lot of emergency circumstances that are going to come up. 
And I have no doubt that people in a lot of uh, companies are working 18 hours a day just to keep the company from falling apart. However, if there are occasional moments, like when you're in the shower or you feel like you can think a little bit, you can ask, what is it that I would like myself and my colleagues to learn from this? How can I make people, me, myself and the people around me better people? And how can I make our joint enterprise a better enterprise? We do have occasional moments to reflect like that, even in the heat of, of battle. And to me, it's really a, it's an interesting lesson to be learned from the way in which we are reacting to the performance of people who are providing essential services. I mean, doctors, yes, nurses, yes, but also people who stock grocery shelves and people who drive supplies from uh, warehouses to groceries, um, people who clean the street, you know, all of these people. What I find striking is that, so we're calling them heroes. Right. The role they are performing now is exactly the same role they performed three months ago. Three months ago, right. nobody called them heroes. People thought of them as invisible. I mean, we didn't even notice them. Uh, they were interchangeable parts. If somebody left, you just replace them in a heartbeat. So we didn't worry about how we paid them. We didn't worry about how we treated them. We didn't worry about whether they could afford to stay home when they were sick. We didn't worry about at all about what kind of childcare they had, whether they, the, the amount of money they were being paid was enough for them to live on in the environment in which they work. They, if you didn't like it, you could leave and you're easily replaced. Well, right. they were no less heroes then than they are now. And so one thing we can learn maybe, is that we need to respect the essential role played by people who don't get the kind of respect, admiration, and attention they deserve. I, I have um, both my mother and my wife's parents ended, ended their lives in nursing homes, and they became pretty demented, pretty Alzheimer's. And so I got to see sort of firsthand what it took to take care of people in their 80s who get mean, in addition to messy, um, and to do it with incredible grace and patience and love. Uh, and I couldn't get over it. And then I find out what these people get paid. They get paid nothing to do a job that I couldn't do for 20 minutes. And they do it hour after hour, day after day. They take abuse from the people they care for and they and they and they respond to the abuse with love now no we don't respect those people right now this minute we do because everybody's getting sick in these nursing homes and when that stops they're still going to be doing this unbelievable work and and our respect for them will vanish and so one could hope that this calling attention to the invisible people can last and we can ask ourselves each of us how do we treat these people, both as people who work for our companies and as people we rely on in living our day-to-day -day lives? And what public policies will we support to enable these people to live somewhat better lives than they currently do, instead of regarding them as disposable? And if you actually thought as a leader of a company about the welfare of everyone in the company from the top to the bottom, 
I think it would transform how you led the company and how, and what you prioritized. So to me, there's a real lesson here. The question is whether it will last more than five minutes after the end of the crisis. Well, and uh, thank, I got a bunch of comments from people saying thank you, incredibly inspiring. Uh, really appreciate very powerful points. So thank you, Barry, for yeah. for sharing that. And and David has a question. He said, "I wanted to ask this earlier when you first spoke about it. I was so engaged in your other answers." Um, he was saying that it sounds like one of the important. So he's part of a larger financial institution. He said it sounds like a really important dialogue for us to have is to ask what are we doing this for and have potential disagreement around this so we can figure out how we're going to, as a senior executive team, respond to the different current challenges and almost unexpected futures. Mm -hmm. So that was his question. Well, I think that's incredibly true. And, and you know, in, people in finance get, you know, I think they've replaced lawyers as the people at the very bottom of, of the hierarchy. So think about what people in finance could think their job is. You could think your job is to do everything you can to make sure that people like me, when they get to be a certain age, will be able to stop working and live decent lives, which means you bear an right. enormous responsibility for shepherding people who put their trust in you to sensible, not overly risky plans that may not maximize your returns, but do, will uh, ma and maximize the chances that these people's lives will be good enough when they reach the point where they're living on their retirement. If you think about that, if you think about the individual people whose lives you hold in your hands, you know, whose financial lives you hold in your hands, all of a sudden, every day you show up for work, it's a life and death affair. Uh, you know, I don't want to over-dramatize it when you're advising 30-year-olds who already have millions of dollars. It's probably not, but there are people who themselves will be dependent on the decision that those 30-year-olds make. And so, right. and so everybody you deal with has a problem. You have the tools to help solve that problem. And when you, if you let them down, you will really uh, have a material negative impact on their lives. So mm. I don't know how much people in the financial industry actually talk about what, what they're doing it for. Um, I right. think if they think they're doing it to produce an annual 40% return on investment, then chances are pretty good that there are going to be a lot of casualties on the street. <laughs> if they right. think they're doing it to enable as many people as possible to live decent lives and secure lives and not be worried about what might happen two weeks from now, uh, then it seems to me there won't be so many casualties on the street, even though the people in this firm may not make as much money. So I right. may not be the answer that who was it David wanted, but great question. Well, we've we've got another one. Again, this is great conversation that I knew. It. So Robert asks, uh, humans are predisposed evolutionarily to care more about the short term, more about immediate visual dangers and more about the unusual sensational than the mundane. So how do we make people care about the long-term collective good? That's What's, a, and that, that is. That's a great question. And I have a couple of answers. I mean, I think that, that although you can find exceptions to that, I think that this 
this description that who was it larry robert robert, robert. i think your description is largely correct um at least based on what i know about the relevant uh, research so how do you get people to think more um, and better about the long term mostly i think the answer to that is you protect people from themselves by putting mm. institutional structures in place to do the long-term thinking for them so for example right. when it mm. comes to putting money away for retirement we now know right. that if you have a default participation in a retirement plan you triple the rate of participation than if the default is that you're not participating you're not forcing people to participate but basically the way to participate is by doing nothing and you have to do something to opt out so there are lots of little nudges that's the term of art that you can put in place that acknowledge our limitations um, and make it easier for us to overcome those limitations because you're basically overcoming them for us as long as we stay out of the way. That's one thing. The second thing I think is that you you need you can try to find ways to bring the long term into the present. So one way of thinking about this is in connection with with you know substance abuse and obesity and lack of exercise the problem with all of these vices is that there's a short-term pleasure and a long-term pain and when you're young and you feel invulnerable the long-term pain a it's not going to happen to me and b it's so far away who the hell cares so how do you bring the long-term negative future into the present one way of doing that is by moralizing the behavior so you know i you can't just sort of graph this on you need to have a certain worldview where this makes sense if you think for example to use language of some religious uh, denominations if you think of your body as a temple if you think of your body mm -hmm. as a gift from god and your job is to be a steward of this gift well then if you abuse your body in one way or another, you are committing an immoral act. And that consequence is not 40 years in the future, that consequence is right now. And so there are ways of thinking about bringing long-term consequences into the present by asking, you know, what am I here to do? What are my responsibilities? Who's depending on me? Who might I be letting down? And that's going to happen now. That's going to happen with this phone call. It's not going to happen 30 years from now when your career is over. It's going to happen right now. So bringing some of the long-term consequences into the present by sort of uh, emphasizing the moral dimensions of people's work and the responsibilities they have to the people they're working for on behalf of. Uh, maybe one way of overcoming the short-termism. I don't know how you overcome the basically just you know ignoring things that are routine and focusing excessively on the unusual. That's certainly true. Again, maybe the thing to do is if you know people are going to ignore the routine, you want to set up structures, institutional structures and policies that make sure that the routine stuff is actually taken care of for people. You know, you can't, for example, you can't get a mortgage unless you have home insurance. 
So I might neglect getting fire insurance for my house, except then I won't be able to buy a house. And so I simply force you to do it. And of course, it's in your interest to do it. You can't get, own a car without automobile insurance. I force you to do it. There are domains where we are effectively protecting people from their worst selves by, make, by imposing requirements on people. Now, there are some people, at least in the US, who hate that. You know, the, the opposition to Obamacare was partly that it was mandatory health insurance and some young people who thought they were invulnerable thought, I don't need health insurance. That's for old people. That's for weak people. That's for, that's for liberals. You know, uh, we gun-toting people don't need health insurance. We take care of ourselves. Damn it, you can't make me get health insurance. So there is that attitude. I don't think it's that dominant. I think it can be overcome. And so that's a way of uh, sort of responding to the fact that we don't notice the ordinary to the extent that we should. Right. Well, uh, fabulous. And again, lots of thanks for that, for that answer and previous answers. And so one of the things you've talked about as well is you mentioned that the most fulfilling work that people can do allows us to make a difference in the lives of other people. And so yep. what can organizations and executives do? Because we are in a pandemic and people everywhere are, around the world are in need. What can be done so that organizations, what advice would you have around so to bring more meaning to the work within organizations and what can leaders do to facilitate that? Well, you know, it's interesting because it's quite possible that this is much more of a challenge. This is much more of a challenge in December than it is now. Um, it's almost, mm. it's almost, it's like written right on everyone's face that what you do has an effect on the lives of other people. Uh, so I don't think now you need to do any dog and pony shows to convince your employees that what they do matters. They know that what they do matters. Uh, it may not be, you know, the epidemiology, the, uh, the uh, infectious disease specialist risking his life in the hospital. But still, if the groceries don't get, to, if the toilet paper doesn't get to the supermarket, what am I going to do? You know, so we all have a part, a yep. role to play. Uh, the problem is, how do you sustain that when the crisis abates right. and things go back to whatever the new normal turns out to be? And I think, you know, sort of building into the culture of the institution, an acknowledgement and a regular reminder, what we did made a difference in people's lives in the crisis. It makes the same difference in people's lives when the crisis is over. And if you have the same seriousness about your work going forward as you had when it was obvious that people were depending on you, I couldn't ask for any more. So I think now it sells itself, and the trick is to make sure that people don't forget. Right. Well, and I love, how, and it links back to earlier on, like what are we doing this for, and and driving our attention to that, to the answer yeah. to that question, and being really clear on that. And I love again the, the the sustainability, as you say, now it's ripe to be there, front and center. How do we keep that continued focus? So the time has flown by. We're almost at the end, which is incredible to me. This has been great. And uh, what are some of the big lessons? I mean, you've done so much phenomenal work around wisdom and and meaning and, and, and meaningful work. And so what are some of the big lessons you've taken from this current global pandemic and, 
and 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 looking into the future, kind of being a futurist around it. Um, where do you see things going from here? And I well, won't put this on YouTube. <laughs> listen, uh, I think anyone who says I know what the future holds is 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 a fool. So let me start out by saying I have no idea what the future holds. I don't know what how long we're going to be in this, what the recovery is going to look like, whether there will be new problems. One possibility is that this is like spring training for global warming. Because my oh. sense, my sense is that as bad as this is, it's nothing compared to what we may face in 20 years. So one can imagine that this is, as I say, spring training or a dress rehearsal for the real season. <laughs> And we'll see whether people, you know, have a kind of uh, more public spirited attitude toward how they spend their time and their resources going forward, even when the problem isn't uh, maintaining, say, you know, so, social distances, but rather, you know, reducing their environmental footprint. Um, but right. here's the thing that I would like for people to take away. There's a, a very famous biologist from the turn of the last century. And he said, here's a principle of evolution. Security is more important than wealth. What did he mean? Mm -hmm. He meant that when you go for a walk in the woods with your incredibly rich sensory system, you notice different sights, different sounds, different smells. You get the rich experience of being out in nature. The squirrel doesn't notice most of that. but the squirrel damn well notices what it has to notice if it's going to stay alive. And so what you've got in the squirrel is redundant systems for detecting what's really important. And so nature designs with an eye towards security. Let's make sure that this squirrel is resilient to who knows what future environmental challenges. So you can have rich experience, wealth of experience, but you're less resilient. The squirrel has a much more impoverished experience. But when, you know, when the end of times comes, there won't be any more of us, but there'll be still be plenty of squirrels, right? So <laughs> I think this is a really important lesson to think about uh, metaphorically. What it means for security to be more important than wealth is that we build systems with lots of redundancy. We have stockpiles that we may never use. We are reluctant to do that because we're taught that you want to have as efficient an economic system as possible. You want every dollar to be earning something. Stockpiles of masks don't earn anything. They just sit there. And I think we have taken for granted because of the security that's sort of been built into our lives in affluent democratic society that security takes care of itself and we should be out to maximize wealth. This may be a lesson that we always need to be paying attention to security uh, and asking how resilient is our, our institutions, how resilient is our economy, how resilient is our company to unanticipatable shocks and how much resource am I willing to devote, non-productive resource am I willing to devote so that the company or the society has an insurance policy against unforeseen disasters. This was not the first one. It will not be the last one.
we have really been skating with great luck uh, as if we don't have to worry about, uh, about resilience. And I think at least for a short time after this ends, no one will think it's a waste of money to be, to be stockpiling against an uncertain future, but that also won't last unless we somehow build it in. And so as a long-term lesson that I would like people to take away, it's to focus less on wealth accumulation and more on security, which we have taken for granted and we shouldn't. Does that help? That's amazing. Yeah, that's. I was going to ask you what's one piece of advice, and that's just perfect. I think, and it's such a powerful question for us to reflect on, and a wonderful lesson to take away. So, um, so this has just been wonderful. I'm going to uh, kind of close in a second. I just want for everyone who are on the line. So, thank you for joining us today. Um, as I mentioned, there are other guests coming up. So, for those of you who are interested, actually tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern, I'm going to be speaking with uh, Dwayne Green, the CEO of Franklin Templeton Canada. And then I'm also uh, speaking with Goldie Hyder next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. So again, join us. He's the CEO of the Business Council of Canada. So going to have a rich discussion, uh, particularly in his insight around Canadian business. Uh, Barry, this has been absolutely amazing. I'm getting so many comments from people uh, online about how wonderful this has been. So uh, thank you so, so much for, for joining me this afternoon and, and uh, hope that uh, you continue to stay well. This has just been great. Well, Craig, thank you so much for asking and for the people, your anonymous people who I can't see. Uh, thank you for those of you who stuck with it for more than the first 10 seconds. <laughs> I hope you found some of <laughs> Well, and I should say, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Everybody has stayed the entire time. I I track like I can I can see you out there. Uh, every, every single person stayed the entire, which is uh, really a testament to the quality of the conversation. And I always you always are looking for ways to kind of downplay. Uh, I I have data to support. That's great to know. qualitative perspective on our conversation. Good. Thank you so much. All right. Bye bye. Yeah. Everybody. Thanks so much. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Do Good to Lead Well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Dowden or reach out via LinkedIn or email info at craigdowden.com. I look forward to meeting you here next week for another transformational episode.